You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Well, again, good morning. Good to be here. You know, I was just mentioning there as I was finishing that song, um, and it's something that struck me as I was... uh, you know how I've said before, we should always know, like, if someone were to ask us at a random moment during our week, our life, whatever, if they were like, hey, what's God doing in your life, right? Like, if we truly are following the Lord and we have this relational aspect to Jesus and us and we're, like, working through things and learning and growing, there should be a moment where we could say, this is what God is working on me, you know, in my heart, in my life, all these things. And a lot of times it's going to be really similar stuff because we're all humans we're all doing the same thing we're all like like yeah god's working on me with patience like i need to be more patient right but sometimes i think in that in that same camp of like man what's the lord doing in me sometimes i feel like we're playing catch up and what i mean is is that god is constantly doing this work in us and he's revealing himself to us in in different ways but sometimes there's just these moments of epiphany right where you just go oh, I get it. Like, it takes forever for some reason for us to get it through our thick skulls that this thing is true, this thing that God is working in me and on me in. And for me, I'll just admit and and confess, like, right now in this season of my life, it's learning that God loves me, right? Now, listen, love, love is of God. We understand these things, right? This is like kind of a huge part of the Christian faith is love, right? We, We all can get that, and we know that up here. But for whatever reason, there come these moments in life where we just, again, have these sort of like brain-blowing moments where we just go, oh, you love me. No, no, no. Like, you not just love me, but you like me. Like, you're into me. Like, that, the focus from you, God, in all of creation, in all of the issues going on in the world, you actually love me. You care for me. And not just, and we'll talk about this more today, not just from a perspective of head knowledge, but actual heart knowledge, right? I want to read just First uh, John uh, chapter 4, one of my favorite passages in the scripture, verse 18. First John chapter 4, verse 18. I always recommend, you know, you have something to write down, whether you write, I write in my Bible a lot of times, but have a pen, write down some things, circle some things, underline some things, write a date by certain things. I have an old Bible that's all worn to pieces, and I have throughout it little dates next to scriptures that were specific moments that the Lord was just like, this is what I want you to know right now, and I track it that way. But here, First uh, John chapter 4, verse 18 says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. This isn't my sermon. I got plenty more today, but let me just say this. How would our lives look if we didn't operate from a position of fear, if we didn't temper our relationships, if we didn't temper our experiences, the adventures we're willing to go on that God might call us to, what would that look like if we weren't held back by fear of some kind? Fear of rejection, fear of failure, right? Fear of being exposed for who we really are. With the Lord, there's no fear because of his perfect love. When we start to process that, do you get that? That like when God loves you perfectly, it doesn't matter how much of a screw up you are. It doesn't matter how many dumb or bad things you've done. God loves you, right? And remember how I've been saying over and over, God will never be, because he's a perfect father, 
right? We're, we're fathers and mothers, and we love our kids unconditionally, but there are those times where we also go, really? Is that what you're doing as a child? Is that what, that's your choice? Mm, interesting. I love you, but I'm not sure if I like you right now, right? But God, because he's a perfect father, God will never be more or less happy with you than he is with his son, Jesus Christ. Can, you, can we let that sink into our psyche? That perfect love of God casts out all fear. Look what Paul, or John goes on to say in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So this is what God is really working in my heart, impressing upon me his love for me, but not just for my own edification, but so that I can truly love other people. Because that's one of my biggest challenges, is actually genuinely loving other people and not marking all of my critiques against them or making my judgments against them. That's fun. That's really easy to do. But God says, hey, I've loved you so that you can now genuinely go love other people. That's huge. And, and if we understand that as we read scripture, that those who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down God's word to us, that this love was being worked out in them as well, it really helps us to, to sort of internalize what like the Apostle Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 5. So turn over to Galatians chapter 5. That's where we're going to find ourselves this morning for the rest of our time. And we have a really long section of scripture here, um, but, but I believe it all points to a singular really big idea that I don't think is communicated well unless we take it as a whole. And of course, as with all scripture, it can be broken down into smaller chunks and there's nuance and there's some important implications if you take the, the, the bits and pieces of it. But I think the perspective that we need to have is seeing this big picture as God's people, people who are following after Jesus and the way of Jesus to live in a manner that shows our love for Jesus and our love for mankind on a really, really large scale. And what we want is for the gospel to move from an intellectual head knowledge to a inspired heart knowledge. It really is what you could categorize or classify as the theology of the head. There's a lot of people who have theology of the head. Like if, they, if you were to ask someone like, what does it mean to be a Christian? They could explain that Jesus died as a sacrificial atonement on the cross, that he was buried, that he was raised three days later, and they could intellectualize it for you. They could give you the theology of the head. And, and even like we talked about on Wednesday night, they could, they could apply to those theological truths Ideas like, well, once saved, always saved. If you've believed at some point in your life, then regardless of what you've done, you're covered. You're saved, regardless of what your life looks like. And, and that's a problem because of the theology of the heart, which takes the truths of Scripture, which takes the truths of salvation, and takes them out of the head and understanding them in the head and places them in the actual innermost parts of your being, your heart, your soul, to where it actually gets worked out in your life. That's what we're going to see Paul drawing a distinction between today. The theology of the head, perhaps, the human body, the flesh, 
and the theology of the heart, what it looks like to actually live out the gospel in our life. And here's why. I'll say this as we jump in. Keep this tucked away in the back of your mind. Following Jesus, Christianity as a whole, is not simply sin management. Can we get that? Right? Our life in being saved from eternal death, our sin being forgiven, isn't for us to then the rest of our life ticky-tack keep a track record of my good points and my bad points, right? It is not simply sin management. Following after Jesus is not just living a life that acknowledges God. There's a lot of people who acknowledge God, who believe that Jesus is real, but they don't live the life God has called them to. A life that is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, directed and guided by God's purposes for your life, not in the tension of, God, here's who you say I should be, but here's who I kind of still want to be tied to my sin. So let's take a look at uh, Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, and then we'll go down and break it, uh, we'll go back and break it down a little bit. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another." If we go back and sort of take this entire culmination of what the Apostle Paul has been teaching the churches of Galatia, who have been fooled, who have been uh, uh, convinced that the gospel wasn't simply believing upon Jesus, it was adding to that truth that they needed to be circumcised. They needed to go back to the Jewish rituals and laws and include them as a part of their salvation. Paul's going, who, who deceived you? Who fooled you? Who drew you away from the truth that I presented to you? 
Remember back in chapter 1, Paul says, if anybody, if an angel of God appeared of some kind, or we ourselves came to you and we amended, we changed the gospel that we first preached to you, he says, let that person be anathema. Let them be cut off, cursed. Because the gospel that was preached to you in the simplicity and truth of your first salvation is the only gospel that applies. That Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that he rose from the grave promising you eternal life. That's it. There's nothing else. It's belief, faith in that work of Jesus, surrendering yourself to him in such a way that he is now your master. Sin is no longer your master. This is what Paul has preached. And so if, if we take a look at, at the context of why Paul is having to say these things, is that, is that when you return to the law, the work of the law becomes effective and evident in our life. And what's the work of the law? Paul has described that the work of the law is to show us our sin. So that if you're trying to hold yourself up to some standard of law to please God, the only thing that's going to happen is that you're going to start having revealed in your life all of these sins that are dominating you and mastering you versus living your life according to the freedom of forgiveness, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which then is that process of having Christ-likeness birthed in us, right? But remember what Paul said, it's painful. It's like childbirth, watching someone, someone come to Christ in the sense of surrendering their life fully, and it is a lifetime occupation of doing it. But I want to point out a couple things very specifically through what Paul said here in this larger section. The first thing comes from verse 13. Paul says to the churches, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In our context, especially in America, because of the fact that we've had freedom uh, socially, uh, democratically, personally, we have a very skewed vision of what authority looks like in our life. See, when we talk about freedom, even though our freedom does have guardrails or boundaries uh, given to us through the Bill of Rights and the Constitution of the United States, all these things, we don't get, you know, it's the Supreme Court at one point said, you don't have the freedom to stand up in a crowded movie theater and yell, fire, when there is no fire. Right? Why? Because that would cause a public panic. It could cause danger to someone else. Your actions, your quote-unquote freedom, could be harmful to someone, right? So we don't have explicit uh, freedom of all kinds. And yet we as Americans still hold on to this attitude of land of the free, home of the brave. We, we're Americans. We get to do what we want. Don't get off my lawn. Don't tell me what to do. Blah, 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 blah. And that's what we all sound like a lot of times, right? Right? When someone's doing something we don't like. You're infringing on my freedoms and my basic human rights. Listen, my brother-in-law says this frequently. Listen, we don't deserve anything. We, we really, in the cosmic value of things, have no rights. The only thing that we deserve or have a right to apart from Jesus is death. That's, that's it. Like because of our transgression, because of our sin, the thing that we deserve is death. That's the natural consequence from our sin. Have a nice day. God bless you. But in Christ, this freedom becomes something completely different. 
See, Paul, Paul really defines this. He says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. How many people have you known? How it may perhaps yourself, you, you've lived in this way. I'm going to allow myself to sin a little bit. I'm going to let that sin that's still lingering in the background that maybe nobody else knows about, I'm going to let it just stay there because it's kind of fun. And we just let that sin linger and, and sit there or we make excuses for it because I'm just a sinner saved by grace. God knows my heart. He knows I don't mean to do it. And then we go and do it, whatever that sin is. Right? Paul says, don't, this freedom that you have, this, this forgiveness that you've received from Christ, don't use it as a way to let your flesh continue being fleshly. He says, rather, use your freedom that you have in service of one another. See, Paul has been calling the church back to unity throughout this letter. He's been calling the church to the reality that we are one in Christ, that the divisions that we have because of our flesh, because of our sin, they need to be worked on. They need to be minimized. They need to be put away so that we, in love for the Lord, start to love one another in a way that the world who is not yet saved looks at us and goes, ah, that's what it's supposed to look like. When I go to a football game and I'm cheering and high-fiving people who I don't even know in the stands and I have that sense of camaraderie and I'm a part of something, what I really want to be a part of is a group that, that actually I can be myself with, that I can be honest with, who actually knows me in a way that when I say I'm struggling, they'll say, have another beer. No, they'll say, let me pray for you. Why don't you come over and let's just spend some time working through those issues. Or they'll just sit with you and let you cry, right? Because even the toughest of person on the exterior, that's truly what they want on the interior. They want some place to feel safe. They want some place to feel accepted. And they want to belong, right? And that's what a family is supposed to look like. And so this is what Paul's saying. Don't use your freedom uh, to, to let your flesh run wild thinking, oh, I'm saved, Rather, use the freedom that you have to start serving one another and showing one another that you love each other, right? For the whole law, Paul says in verse 14, is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbors yourself. Is Paul amending what Jesus said? Because wasn't Jesus asked what the most important law was? And he said it was, it was the first, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? And, and to have no other gods before him. That's, that, that was the law that Jesus stated. And then Jesus said, and the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. Is Paul like discounting what Jesus said by not putting God first? No, remember what we just read in, John, in 1 John chapter 4. We love because God first loved us. It's impossible for us to love our brother and sister, the second commandment, unless the first is true, that we love God. Does that make sense? It's implicit in his instruction that he says that the law is fulfilled in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Implicit in that, we don't have the ability to love our neighbor unless we're loving God first. We're on the same page? Yeah? This is what Paul says, that this is how we're supposed to serve one another by pursuing unity. True salvation is applying the law of love by serving one another. There's a lot of implications in this for us in terms of the practicality of the church. You see, the church can exist without this, meaning, meaning without microphones and guitars and speakers 
and uh, a formal table set up for communion, you realize the church can, in fact, the church does exist without all of this in the majority of the world, right? In, In our context, this is like what we're shooting for, right? Let's get more people in the room and then maybe we could find a building and then we could get a kid's wing and then we could get a whatever, fill in the blank, right? Like that's the American model of what church looks like. But the problem with that is that as soon as you start doing those things and make those things the focus, what you've cut your legs out from under you with is the fact that you're no longer out reaching other people. You're inviting people to come to a monolithic structure, right? And so the church can exist without a building to meet in. In fact, the church existed like that for centuries, getting together down by the river or finding places that they could gather in someone's home, somebody who had a home that they could just welcome in people to fellowship and break bread with, to serve, right? Like these are the things that define the church, the way that we love, not just the, the, the how we do a church service. It's important for us to define those things. Now, Paul takes this idea and, and this idea of freedom that we have in Christ, not to use it for the flesh, for the law to actually be fulfilled in how we love because God has loved us. And then he moves into verse 16, and he offers the warning in verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, watch out you're not, that you're not consumed by one another. This is just an, a practical warning within the church, and we've talked about it at length, so I won't go too far in this. But the, the, the worst kind of hatred is often called Christian love. Christians who are supposed to be caring for one another, but behind each other's backs, we're biting and we're talking bad about, we're gossiping. That, that's, just, that's just sin, plain and simple, perhaps the worst kind, that those who are supposed to be brothers and sisters in union and fellowship with one another, that we're snipping at each other, right? Paul says, watch out for that. You, you can be devoured by that. And then he says this, and he offers this, this uh, command, if you will, but I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And this harkens back to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I do want to do. No less of an authority than the Apostle Paul gives us the hope and the courage, perhaps, to pursue this life in the spirit versus the flesh because he's really vulnerable and he says, I'm still struggling with this stuff. I can tell you this is true because it's God's word spoken through me. I'm not telling you that I've fulfilled it completely. But I do tell you that you should follow Christ by following my example because I'm following Christ, right? That's what Paul tells the church. And so he says that you should walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now here's the, here, here's, here's the thing. The conflict that most of us have at some point because we've either uh, hardened our hearts to this or simply haven't been discipled to know the voice of the Holy Spirit well enough or we haven't spent time in the Scripture enough to really get it into our bones spiritually, the question then goes uh, or asks, well, what is Spirit and what is flesh? How do we draw a distinction between those things? I'm glad you asked. Because here's the beauty of Scripture. 
The Bible gives us these answers, right? In, in just plain letters, plain language, take a look at what the Apostle Paul says here in chapter 5. He tells us what the spirit versus the flesh actually looks like. Verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. That simply means that you can see them. They're obvious. This is important for us to to, to take in as we begin to read these descriptions of the flesh versus the spirit. Because again, a lot of us have grown up with this sort of justification in our mind that says, as long as I'm right inwardly, the outward doesn't matter as much. You can't judge me. You don't know me. How many people tattoo across their body someplace? Only God can judge me. I mock that because the reality is, is yes, that's true. God is the judge and will judge us according to our faith in Jesus or not. But the truth is, in the church, Paul is very explicit in saying, we are called to know the difference between someone who's a part of the flock that we can have fellowship with, and we are also called to know those who are still in slavery to sin so that we can call them to righteousness. So what happens on the outside of your body, your mouth, your hands, your, your everything, like it matters what you do as a follower of Jesus. And I've said this a million times, I'll say it a million times more, not for the sake of salvation, okay? Salvation is by faith alone, by God's grace alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's salvation. But the rest of our life, we are called to look like Jesus, to grow toward completeness in Christ. Therefore, the things that happen outside of our bodies, our interactions, our relationships, our behaviors, they matter. And so Paul says the works of the flesh are evident, meaning you can see them and you know that someone is still tied to the flesh. They're still a slave to sin if these things are continuing in their life. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of angers, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and orgies, and things like this, which means, things like these, which means there's even more to the list. Now, we look at that list, and we're like, yep, amen, Paul. Yep, that's the flesh, those weirdos in Hollywood with their orgies and their sexual immorality and their witchcraft and their sorcery, those pagans. It's really easy to look at those and go, yep, that's the flesh. Hold up a second. See, the first part of the list is real obvious. It makes a lot of sense for us to look and go, yeah, if someone's just pursuing impurity in their life, they're just damaging their body, they're damaging relationships, they're hurting themselves, they're falling outside of the natural order of what God has created. Yeah, that's easy to look at and go, that's the flesh, man. But look at the second half of the list. Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. See that little middle part of the list? He finishes off with drunkenness and orgies and we're like, amen. But when it says jealousy, we go, huh? What do you mean jealousy? If you live your life always looking at someone else and going, I wish what they, I had what they had, 
Like, oh, how no, it would be great to have a nicer house, a bigger house, a nicer car, or more money. Like, oh, if my relationship was like their if we're If you live your life jealous of what someone else has, do you realize what you're saying? God, what you've given me isn't enough. When you're jealous and you live from the motivation of jealousy, I want more, I want different. You're basically saying, God, I don't trust you. I don't trust you to give me what I need in this moment. Not in comparison to Joe Blow down the street, but just for me right now. God, you know what I need. And if I'm constantly looking for something in this world to please me, to fill me up, and I'm jealous because somebody else has what I want, I'm still living according to the flesh. And if I'm doing that, then I'm under the conviction of the law. And if I'm under the conviction of the law apart from Christ, I'm dead. Period. So jealousy. Jealousy. Okay, I can get jealousy. Rivalries. I, when I think of rivalry, I just think of Oregon State and Oregon, like the Civil War. I know they renamed it for some stupid political reason, but like the Civil War between or- the Ducks and the Beavers, that's, that's a rivalry, right? Like a college rivalry. Well, no. It, it's, I'm going to show up at church and let that other mom know that I've got my kids in order. Right? There's the rivalry. Boy, they came in last week, nobody was crying, and they were all dressed nice, and everybody had both shoes on. This week, just watch. Mine are going to walk in a straight line into church, right? I know this sounds silly, but listen, these are the kinds of things that, that, we, that we, without even realizing it, these are the works of the flesh. I'm going to Bible study this week, and, uh, you know, so-and-so had memorized three verses last week. Oh, my goodness, well, I'm going to memorize five this week. Like, is it good to memorize scripture? Yeah, but is your motivation to do better than someone else or to beat someone else at it? You just sort of, like, canceled out the benefit of remembering the scripture at that point. See, the nuance of what Paul talks about in the flesh is not just the headlines, right? It's not just the bad stuff that we hear that's explicit and gross and and really, like, extremely bad. But we have to realize that that stuff that's in our hearts, the things that we work through and are struggling with, especially when it's interpersonal, fits of anger. Well, well, I was annoyed. I was having a bad day. Listen, if that's the definition of your life is watch out because dad just got home from work and he's a little stressed out and the expectation is that there's going to be some sort of explosion, right? Then you're living according to the flesh and you need to repent. I'm first in that line so you can get behind me. Okay. See, the inward things oftentimes are so much harder to work through than the outward things. Yeah? And yet that's what we're called to, is to put to death the flesh. That's why baptism is so important. It's that picture that says we're dead. We, our old man, the sin that Jesus died for and he went into the grave for, that goes under the water. It's gone. It's dead. And when I come up out of the water... It's this celebration that I have this new life, just like how Jesus rose from the grave. It's this new life. It's, it, no, 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 it's different. It's completely different. The motivation's different. The behavior's different. The expectations are different than before I went in the water. Now, here's what, here's what Paul says in contrast to that. He finishes off the list in verse 21, and, and he finishes with this statement. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things, or the idea here is continue to do these things, 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a, this is a harsh statement, right? And this is one that I'm, I, I, can, I can see people lining up against the Apostle Paul to say, who are you to judge? You just said you're still struggling with stuff. You're not perfect. How dare you tell me that as I'm struggling with the flesh, that if I continue in these things, I'm not going to inherit the kingdom of God. How dare you? You don't know my heart. Only God can judge me. This is the importance of what Paul says. That the works of the flesh are evident. They're seen by all. And what they indicate is the state of your heart. And even the state of your salvation. This is, this is a slippery slope. And so God, God, God protect me not to go too far on this. It's not our job to judge someone else in regard to their salvation. But within the family of God, within the church of Jesus Christ, we are called to recognize these things for the purpose of calling sin out to say, get rid of it. Brother, sister, we're seeing this in your life. We love you. The Apostle Paul loved the church. God loved us first. You're going to be better off if you get rid of the sin. Don't do it. Don't continue in it. And the idea here is that it's unrepentant. They're just continuing in that sin. They may say Jesus over here, but they're not really repenting. They're just continuing in the flesh. And Paul gives the warning that if you continue to do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a frightful warning, but it's a good warning for us and drives us to the next part of this verse that says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, the outworking of the Spirit, meaning when the Holy Spirit is in you, these are the things that you can expect to be growing in you as a follower of Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against those things, there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Why is the cross so important. We have this weird thing within, within the Protestant uh, church over the last several hundred years, and, and there was a good root for it, not wanting to create idols out of things, right? But the history of the church, if you look back over 2,000 years from the founding of the church at Pentecost onwards, icons and imagery has always been a part of worship. So to have a cross on a wall or for someone to wear a cross as a piece of jewelry to sort of remember and remind themselves, that's a historically accurate part of our faith. It is not idolatry. It is not uh, iconography for the sake of worshiping the icon. It is a remembrance of why the cross is so important. We all, the old hymn says, the cross before me, the world behind me, right? Always keep the cross in front of you. Always remember that your sin was nailed to that cross with Jesus. The cross is so central to our faith. Yes, an implement of torture and suffering and murder, and yet it's the wood that is thrown into the bitterness, the mara of our hearts, so that it can come out sweet, that our lives can be changed for the better. The cross is, is so central to the evidence that the Holy Spirit is now in control of us. And I want you to recognize in verse 22 that there is a sequence here. There is a priority how the Apostle Paul lists out these virtues or the growth of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Love is number one, period. Love is number one. 
Without love, none of the other attributes or fruit of the Holy Spirit is possible. Love is number one. Joy, secondly. There sh- this is not to say that Christians don't have bad moments or are sad in moments. Remember, it doesn't say happiness, it says joy. You can still have joy in the midst of the darkest experiences that you have in your life, right? Joy supersedes happiness and sadness, okay? Joy is about the hope that I have eternally. The love that we have from God the Father to us through Jesus Christ and the joy that we have in our life. You could do an entire sermon series on each one of these elements of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to do that, but I want you to again remember verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Two things primarily. Number one, the crucifixion of the flesh. The evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life contains two things primarily. Number one, the crucifixion of the flesh, and here's why. Love requires sacrifice. Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. How many people want to say, oh Lord, I love you. Thanks for saving me. Thanks for dying on the cross for my sins. They have a head knowledge. They have a theology of the head. They can explain what happened in that, in that transaction of salvation. But God forgive me, I, I'm still going to go do things that are controlled by the world and the flesh. I know you'll forgive me because you love me. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what I say. You'll follow my commandments. True love requires sacrifice. This is a painful word, but do you know why relationships fail? Marriages, parent-children relationships, friendships, any relationship. Relationships fail because of selfishness. That's the root cause. Someone might say, well, it's pride. Yeah, they're related. I mean, take your pick. Pride, selfishness, they they go together hand in hand. But it's because someone is not willing to say, I care more about what happens to you than what I get out of this situation. See, Jesus loved us so much in relationship that he says, even though it's not my fault, even though I'm not guilty, I'll go ahead and die. See, in a relationship, for it to be successful, someone has to die. Someone has to die to their issue, their thing, their preference, They have to put themselves second. They have to put the other person first. Jesus put you and me first in the relationship. As messed up as that sounds, he put you and me first. So the crucifixion of the flesh, expressing true love through the sacrifice of letting go of sinful behavior is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. The second evidence is this. Look at what Paul finishes this statement as, uh, as saying. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. The second evidence of the Holy Spirit working in our lives is humility. Man, we as followers of Jesus, if we know what has happened, if we know that we don't deserve, haven't earned, haven't merited God's favor, we haven't earned our salvation, it's simply by the gift of grace. If we know that, we of all people should be humble. King James describes it as as lowly. See, we don't like that idea, again, in our American vernacular. We don't like the idea of being last place. 
The Olympic trials are going on over at Hayward Field. It's been fun watching just the competition and the amazing physical feats that are going on. But man, the thing there is about who's first. Who's first? Who qualifies for the Olympics, right? And we're like, yeah, go USA or whoever it is, right? Like, it's first, first, first. Man, listen, the paradigm of Christianity is completely opposite to the world. We have to internalize that. It's not about who's first in Christianity. We already know who's first. It's Jesus. There's no competing with that. But for us to actually encounter and experience that, we have to be willing to be last. We have to humble ourselves and be willing to be lowly. See, that's the example that Jesus says. It says of Jesus that he was meek and lowly. He was humble. He was a servant. And this is what we're called to be. No arrogance or conceit over how righteous I am. No, no arrogance in I've arrived or I've got this figured out or me and God had a little conversation and we struck a deal to where I don't have to do all the churchy stuff. I, he knows my heart and so I'm good. And when I get up there, Peter will kind of usher me in through a side gate and go, I know, yeah, you and God. Mm-hmm. There's none of that. It's that my entire life, now that I know Christ, is sacrifice. It's submitted to him to serve him, love him, and serve his people and love his people so that we can be an example to the world so that God, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, would save many. That's, that's the paradigm. That's how we have to envision and, and live to fulfill what it is that God has called us to. And so Paul says it, we must walk in the Spirit and not according to the flesh. I hope you see how important it is that our spiritual disciplines lead us to this type of obedience and faithfulness. Does God think of you any less because you missed your daily devotionals and didn't read your Bible today? Nope, he doesn't. There are some people in some churches that would teach you, yeah, God's disappointed with you if you didn't read your Bible today. There's no... Tell me where in Scripture it says that God's happy with us because there was no Bible back then. The Bible was the Old Testament, right? It was the prophets and the law. That's the only Scriptures they had back then, right? See, God's not disappointed that you didn't read the Bible. But, but here's the truth about that. The more you read Scripture, the more you read the Bible, the more in tune you're going to be with what the Holy Spirit is actually instructing you to do, Right? And here's why that's so important, because it's very easy in the absence of instruction to try and just determine for yourself what's right. I feel, I think. Who, who knows if that's right or wrong? We judge that according to Scripture. See, the more and more we have Scripture in our hearts and in our minds, we're like, oh, that thought that I had, that wasn't right. Or that compulsion or, or conviction I had, that is right. That matches up with, script, with what Scripture said, right? So that spiritual discipline of reading the Scripture, hugely important. Prayer. How can you be in a relationship with someone and, and express love for someone and, and communicate with someone if you don't talk? If a husband or wife get married and they kiss on the wedding night and then the rest of their life they just live separate from what? That's not a marriage, it's not a relationship. Well, they know that I love them. I married them. 
No, it's not how that works. There needs to be this reciprocation. There needs to be this expression. There needs to be passion. There needs to be zeal. There needs to be interaction. That's why we sit and talk with God. That's why we sit and listen to what he says to us and and we interact and we bring our fears, we bring our hopes, we bring our dreams. We understand that, that we're in a safe place with him to express everything that he's put into us. Communion. This is where we meet Jesus week by week perhaps day by day for you. Maybe this is the thing that you need to do is get those little, those little disposable communion packets. They're gross. They taste horrible, but they're great. You can take them with you wherever you go and sit and, and, and just have a moment each day where you go, Jesus, just remind me that it was your body that was broken and your blood that was shed. And as I partake of these things, it's, it's in me. I'm actually consuming the reality of what took place on the cross. I'm reminded that your blood washes me clean so that all in the last 24 hours, all the dumb stuff I've thought, said, or did, I'm reminded that that stuff is washed away. And so hopefully we see the disciplines of the Christian life not as burdensome, not as this requirement for righteousness or salvation, but simply helping to facilitate for us the truth of the impact of the Holy Spirit in a practical way in our lives. So this morning, as, as we always do, I invite you to come to the table of fellowship with the Lord, the table of communion, to participate in the representation, the representation of Christ's broken body and his shed blood, that we no longer are subject to punishment, we are no longer subject to the penalty of sin and death because of the shedding of Christ's blood on our behalf.